Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. Thoughts and comments expressed here are the opinions of Chad and Lou, and not necessarily those of Al Seeger or Point of Insanity Game Studios. Caution, this show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 14 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and alongside me is Lou Schwalbach. This episode, we'll be continuing our series about songs that feature one single word in common in their title. This week's word is black. Spanning across all genres of music, colors make their way into song titles pretty often, either dealing with the feeling of the singer or the mood they're singing about. Today we'll be talking about some black songs from a range of artists. So pull down the shades and then sit back and relax while we get this show started. For a clarification purpose, uh, Lou and I were talking about uh, a few songs in the last episode or two where we were kind of arguing about where a song came from, and then in one case about how a, a, a artist died. So we're just going to clear those up here. So the song You Could Be Mine was from Use Your Illusion 2. So congratulations, Lou. You were correct. Thank you. Thank you. And the second part is we were talking about Robert Palmer and how he had died. And you had said, oh, you thought it was a heart a heart attack. Right. And I had said, oh, I thought he died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And again, Lou, you were right. So I was wrong twice. Okay. Well, it happens. <laughs> So hopefully at some point, when we get into the next argument, I won't be a complete idiot, and I'll actually know what I'm talking about. No one ever thinks you're a complete idiot. You know, everybody has their moments, so... Fair enough. All right, so why don't you kick us off this week with Black Songs? All right, let's go ahead and get started. My first Black Song I have is Black Horse and the Cherry Tree by K.T. Tungstone. Right! And you don't have any idea what this song is, do you? I've never heard of it. You know, I'll bet you you probably heard it. You probably heard the hook of it. Okay, why don't you sing a little bit for me? Um, I'm going to call a big no on that one, <laughs> because this is not the karaoke hour. This is our musically challenged, and I personally am musically challenged when it comes to singing. Okay, fair enough. So anyways, I, I'll i be honest, I remember encountering this song at Target. 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 The, the big box store? The big box store, yes. I was at the Target, I want to say, in, it must have been in Iowa, because it was in 2005 when the song came out, and it was playing over the loudspeakers. The beat was entertaining, so I listened to it completely and was kind of baffled by what the hell she was talking about. Because okay. it's it's very symbolic. It's one of those where you really kind of have to look. And I'll be honest, I had no idea what the hell was it about because I was more literal thinking of it. I When I looked it up, I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So we'll just take a quick listen, then I'll keep talking about that. But I said no, 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 no. I said no, no, you're not the one. Now, per KT, which I think she's Irish or Scottish or some-ish. So is it KT as in like Katie? Or um, is it KT as in like the... K like Kite, T like Tom. Okay, so the, the initials. initials. Right, exactly. Okay. Per the artist herself, it's about being lost on your path, gambling with fate, listening to your heart, and possibly fighting the darkness, which is apparently the black horse. And that's always willing to carry you away. As we just obviously probably figured out, I don't look into song meanings. I, just like I don't watch movies to go into the symbolism and all that bullshit, I go into a movie and a song to be entertained. Fair enough. I, I would have to agree with you on the idea that music is there to entertain. And the first thing that's going to catch me usually is the hook. Sure, yeah. And then it's going to be followed by the overall musical flow. I, I'm more captured by music than the words. Right. You know, and there's certain songs that if you sit down and think about it, like Bohemian Rhapsody, for example, it tells a story. There's really not a whole lot of hidden agenda on this one. Right. So you don't have to think about it. And again, I don't want to think about it for my music. I just want to listen to it and be entertained. So I don't really look into song meanings very deeply. This one here, it's got a really good bluesy pop beat that I kind of liked. I have to say the rest of the album was actually pretty good, too. It was one of those where I bought it for one song and listened to it. I'm just like... 
it's actually not too bad. I think she's done either one or two CDs after that, and it's kind of the end of her. But it was a good freshman effort. Okay, now my question would be, you bought it for that one song. Was it the best song on the album? Because I have found over time that when I buy an album, you'll usually buy it for the song that's on the radio. Oh, the, the single. The well. single, yeah. And it's never the best song on the album. You know, and, and this was before iTunes, so it wasn't something, I think it was before iTunes, I don't know, 2005? I, I still don't know. Let's, let's just say sure. I think we should try to figure this out and see if Lou is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. But it was one of those where, either that or I just didn't use iTunes because I didn't have an Apple phone and there was no need to download MP3s. Right. And the CD was six bucks, so it's like, what the hell for? Right. the song was a buck and a half. But either way, was it the best song on the disc? In my opinion, I'm going to say probably yes. Okay. the rest of it is good. It's good... It's a good relaxing song. It's got a good beat to it, as I mentioned before. It's something that it's not relaxing the point where it'll put you to sleep, but it's also something that'll kind of calm you down. That's probably the way, best way to put it. Okay. So it, it's worth a listen. I'm not even sure if I even still own that one or if I just ripped it and sold it, but I have no regrets for it because it was. it's a good CD, a good entertaining set of music. Excellent. All right. I'm going to jump into with my first one here for tonight, and this is one... You're going to know the band. You will probably know the song, but a lot of people out there won't. Okay, yeah. So, Black Diamond by Kiss. I know the band. I was not familiar with the song. Okay. Black Diamond is actually, in my opinion, one of their better songs as far as lyrically and and musically put together. And it's, it's a better song, but I'll be honest, if you listen to any classic rock station, I don't think I've ever heard this song on classic rock stations. Which is surprising, and, and I'll tell you why in a little bit here, but... So Black Diamond is a song by Kiss written by rhythm guitarist Paul Stanley. Black Diamond was written almost exactly as it is, he said, except that the riff wasn't there. Gene brought that part in. It's all about arrangement and embellishment. That's what you're supposed to do in a band. Come in and add something. Right. But that doesn't always mean you wrote the song. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. So the song is the closing track on the band's epi- I hate this word. On the band. <laughs> Hippopotamus? <laughs> no, on the, I'm just going to say on the band. Essential? Sure. <laughs> on their first album, Kiss, Re- Kiss, released in 1974. And that brings us back to the topic of naming your first album after your band. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, their freshman effort being. Right. So it begins with an acoustic opening sung by Stanley before a furious riff enters. Accompanied by Peter Chris on lead vocals, it fades out with Ace Fraley's solo in a sort of studio trick. The song is also characterized by its noticeable use of chorus and its ending. The tape studio version was slowed down almost to a standstill. The live version is usually sped up in tempo, combined with stage pyrotechnics and a rising drum platform. Let's take a glimpse at this song. The band would often play Black Diamond to close their concerts. Even after Chris left the band, the song was still performed, featuring his replacement, Eric Carr and Eric Singer, on lead vocals during their respective tenures with the band. Black Diamond has appeared on the following Kiss albums. And this is why I said it's surprising that the song isn't played more heavily in rotation on radio. Okay. So it was on the album Kiss on the studio version, Kiss Alive, the live version, the originals, Double Platinum, the box set, Kiss Symphony Alive 4, Gold, and Kiss Alive 1975-2000, to and has been covered multiple times by the likes of Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, and The Replacements. So, Lou, your thoughts on this song and Kiss, since this is their first appearance on our show. Which is a little surprising, if um, to be, for me at least. I was never a huge, huge Kiss fan, because it was one of those bands, much like Led Zeppelin, that... Classic rock stations have their favorites, yep. which everybody does, and it's always rock and roll all night, or occasionally you'll get Dr. Love, or Detroit Rock City if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah. But if you listen to almost any DJ, they talk about how Kiss is the best thing ever, and they're a great band. I'm not going to argue that, but I don't think they're the greatest ever, 
That being said, I enjoyed the song. Okay. Now, how about when did you learn about Kiss? When was what was your first introduction to Kiss? Uh, that I couldn't recall. I mean, I remember the first song being "Rock and Roll All Night" because it's played all the damn time. Right, and it's in like every teen angst movie. There's you know, "Rock and Roll All Night," "Party All Day" kind of thing. I'll bet you that probably the first time I came about that was, I would have to say maybe when I saw "Days and Confused." Because okay. Days and Confused, which has a phenomenal soundtrack, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's one of the best soundtracks, as far as I'm concerned, out there. Absolutely. And that's on there. Um, either, uh, it's either there or maybe Fast Time. No, it was Days and Confused. Uh, Fast Times is a good soundtrack, too, actually. So I came into listening to Kiss, though, during their non-makeup years, which is some of their worst put-together music. They're kind of a fugly group of people. Oh, God. Gene Simmons is... Gene, if you're listening, I'm sure you're not. But if you are, I'm sorry, dude. You're ugly. You're, you're really ugly. <laughs> um, but anyway, so let's move on to your next song. Well, we're going to go with another older band who actually still did newer stuff, and that was Blue Oyster Cult. Okay. Blue Oyster Cult uh, put out a song called I'll See You in Black in 1998. Okay, that was really late for them. Quite, actually, because, I mean, if you think of the Don't Fear the Reaper stuff, that was 70s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, late 70s, 78, 77, okay. something like that. Now, this one has a personal story for me, actually. Uh, I had a friend who was a big BOC fan, and he pretty much wet himself when he heard that they were coming out with the CD in 98. Okay. So, this came out, and, you know, heaven, the CD was actually called Heaven Forbid. And upon getting the disc, he played it in his car and promptly blew out his speakers, playing this <laughs> song on repeat. Blue Ersicult went on a much harder and faster rhythm and groove than what they're used to. I mean, if you know the classic Godzilla, which was still kind of a gruff type music, um, but like Burn For You and Don't Fear the Reaper, they're just, they're classic 70s rock. Yeah, they're just a good rock song. This was straight up harder rock. That kind of surprises me. Well, yeah, and let's take a quick listen. This, I don't know about you, but it was enough of a change that many people wouldn't even recognize them as the same band who gave us the hits, again, Burnin' For You and Godzilla. The song itself speaks about a guy who is talking to his friend Anne, without an E apparently, stating that he'd like to see you in black, I'd make you feel like your husband's dead. Ooh. Before Jaws hit the floor, just like yours did, <laughs> um, it's brought up that Anne is getting beaten by the husband, and the wish for death isn't for the benefit of him, but hers to stop the violence. Okay, fair enough. You know, the theme's been done before. It's It has. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is that Nickelback song, Never Again, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously that's more recent and such, but it's been done before. It'll be done in the future, but it just makes the song work. If you really think about it and listen to the lyrics, you don't really have to think twice about what it's about, as we mentioned before. It just works, and it's a hard, good song. I I can't say the whole disc is great, but this one is actually a very entertaining song. Now, as far as my life with blue oyster cult it comes down to those few songs you mentioned yeah you know they're they're not a band that's really they never appeal to me a lot other than those few songs mm -hmm. um i saw them in concert once because they came to the fair here nice and um i actually left about halfway through really yeah it just i don't know if you know a lot of times when you get bands at you know local fairs and that kind of stuff it's the end of their tour or it's the beginning of a tour. Or a revival or something like that. Right. And they just, it was bad. You know, and actually, that's it's funny you should mention that, because that was one of the ideas we had for going further in the future, was what's, what bands sound good live and what bands sound like crap live. Right, right. And it sounds like you would say this is one of yours that sounded just bad live. Yeah, I just did not. And another one, which might surprise you, is Ario Speedwagon. Now, I've seen Ario Speedwagon three times. I've seen him live a couple times. One time, they were fantastic. Okay. It was the start of a tour. Okay. The other two times I saw them, it was the end of a tour, and they were horrid. I saw R.U. Speedwagon at a Summerfest in Des Moines, and they opened up for Ted Nugent. So, of course, I wasn't there to see him, them. I was there to see Ted. Well, right. And Kevin Cronin, the lead singer, 
I swear to God, the dude talked and told personal stories between every song, probably about five, six minutes between every song. I mean, if you need to catch your breath, great, but I don't give a shit. (laughs) Just seriously, either sing your song or maybe have him do a guitar solo or something else. I don't care. Yeah, you know, and I've been to concerts, and I am a fan of being talked to from the artist. But, like, what you're saw, what you saying is way overkill. Well, a little bit is fine. You know, like, hey, this is a great song. This makes us think of whatever. Fine. But if you're going to have a conversation and talk about how you talked to the other person backstage and the night before you had a drink and then there was this girl that had three boobs that came up and whatever else, I don't care. I didn't come to listen to your story. Wait, wait, stop. Stop. Just something I came up with. I know, but... If he's telling you a story about a girl with three boobs, watch totally shut up and listen. <laughs> but, I mean, you understand what I'm trying yes. to say, though. It's just, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I, it's fine. If I want to know more about him, I'll buy an autobiography. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, getting back to Blue Oyster Cult, I don't know the song. It sounds like a song that I might enjoy to listen to. You know, I like mm-hmm. a good, heavy song. Yeah. And I'll definitely have to listen to it at some point. But, um, you know, Blue Oyster Cult, they're, they're a nice 70s band. So... Absolutely. So what are you going to follow up with for us? Well, I'm going to go to a much softer song. Oh, come see the softer side of Sears. Yeah, or the softer side of Chad. This is actually one of my favorite songs. Okay. It's called Black Velvet by Alana Miles. Okay, yeah. So, okay. So Black Velvet is a song, and it was written by Canadian songwriters Christopher Ward and David Tyson. Recorded by Canadian singer-songwriter Alana Miles. It was released in December 1989 as one of four singles from Miles' 1989 freshman CD from Atlantic Records. It became a number one hit for two weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1990 and reached number one on the Album Rock Track chart. Self-titled? Doesn't say, and I didn't look that far. As well as number 10 in her native Canada and number two on the UK singles chart. It contains blues verses with a rock chorus. Let's listen a bit. So Miles won the 1991 Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance, Female, for the song, and then the 1990 Juno Award for Single of the Year. Since its release, the song has received substantial airplay, received a Millionaire Award from ASCAP uh, in 2005 for more than 4 million radio plays. The song is a pay-on to Elvis Presley, uh, co-writer Christopher Ward, who was Miles' then-boyfriend, was inspired on a bus full of Elvis fans riding to Memphis attending the 10th anniversary vigil at Graceland in 1987. Upon his return to Canada, he brought his idea to Alana and producer David Tyson, who wrote the chords for the bridge. The song was one of three in a demo Miles presented to Atlantic Records, which eventually got her signed to the label. What are your thoughts on the song, Lou? It's a good song. It is quintessential 80s. Uh, It's got that very bluesy vibe to it that I do enjoy. My first thought when I think of Black Velvet is, I don't know if it's a bourbon or if it's a liquor or whatever, but there's actually a Black Velvet uh, brown some form of liquor. Uh, So I don't think of a lot of Miles first thing, of course. Okay. However, I do recall reading a couple articles about, like, where are they now for 80s artists, and apparently she is not the most pleasant person. I can believe that. I mean, personalities don't really play through in music, which is another good thing, because if Every artist out there, their attitudes played through their music. We wouldn't listen to music. On a lot of them, yeah. I mean, there's a few of them you can tell, uh, Jamie Foxx being one of them. I mean, he's a pretentious dink and comes <laughs> through in his music. Same, same way with... Uh, you mean the actor? Yes. Just like um, there's another hip-hop artist who I refuse to say his name, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. I probably don't, but... He's 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 in with the Kardashian family now. Oh, yes, okay. Yes, I refuse to say his name is worse than Voldemort. <laughs> in, but that being said, yeah, you're right. If if personalities came out, I mean, they're, my, my music collection would be a lot slimmer than it currently is. Yeah, uh, both of us. But anyway, you know, it was another one of those songs, the, the smokiness in her voice, mm-hmm. you know, the... Uh, 
just the sound of the music in the background. I think all the pieces came together to make that the song that it became. And even though she was not the first one to record it, because when they brought the idea to the record company, the company said, no, that's not for her. And they gave it to another artist. So this other artist put it out um, early in 89 and it went nowhere. And so they said, well, just let her record it then. And they're like, fine, record it, whatever, you know what? And it fucking blew up. So I, I, I found that when I was reading through stuff. I thought that was really kind of funny. And, of course, the people who suggested it was for her in the meantime basically stood behind the recording glass with two middle fingers up when, <laughs> when they heard how well it was doing. Yeah, exactly. So what do you got up next? Next, we're going to go to a band that you actually did mention about doing a cover earlier, and that's Pearl Jam. Okay. The song is just called Black by Pearl Jam. It was released in 1991. It's a power ballad off of their debut album, 10, which, look at that, it's not self-titled. That's true. Did Pearl Jam ever do a self-titled? No, I don't think they ever did. I don't think they did. And which is the other option for bands? A lot of times it's either their freshman album or, in rare cases, such as the Beatles with the White Album, which really is entitled Beatles. Right. Um, it's somewhere later in their career. In fact, for the Beatles, it was almost at the end. There was only one album that came after the White Album. Right. It's then, or they don't do it at all. You know, there's and there are some bands that just have never done a Greatest Hits either. Right. Uh, ACDC is one of them. They've really never, ever done a Greatest Hits. Does ACDC have any hits? Oh. No, I'm just giving you shit. Oh, I'm fighting words. <laughs> uh, anyways, getting back here, it came off of the album 10, which is just one of the many hit singles off of that album. Personally, I think that is one of their best their best efforts. 10, and you, you were holding up Vitology, I believe it is. Yeah, and see, Vitology was my favorite Pearl Jam album, but 10 was a lot of good, too. 10 had Jeremy on it as well. I believe so, yeah. And a few other songs that, that hit the airwaves. Pearl Jam, I always had an issue with Pearl Jam because Eddie Vedder's a douchebag. Okay. <laughs> you know, just you just read about him in the in in you know everything out there and he's just kind of you know he wouldn't work with Ticketmaster at one point so the tickets to Pearl Jam went super high because they were doing their own management of stuff because they didn't want to give Pearl Jam a little bit of a cut yeah. kind of thing. So, you know, it's just one of those things and he just looks like a pretentious dick. A lot of the grunge people did though. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, continue. Oh, anyways, well, let's just kick into the clip real quick, and then we'll continue on. Vedder sings in a shrouded, symbolic, mostly, way about staying with his ex-girlfriend. In more recent times, though, it was turned out that he changed the lyrics when performing the song to We Belong Together to We Don't Belong Together to signify that he's moved on. You know, good for him. You know, I like the song. I really can't think of much else to say about it. It was the early 90s. I didn't get into Pearl Jam until much later. Um, I wasn't one to be into grunge initially, so it was... Probably, I'd say probably late 90s, 2000s when I first really kind of came into them. And it's good. I mean... Well, and you weren't much of a grunge guy. No, not at all. So the fact that you're bringing Pearl Jam to the table in general is just kind of a hats off to Pearl Jam that they were able to catch your attention. Absolutely. And I couldn't, you know, I could maybe name a handful of songs. I'm not a huge lifelong fan. I When I was at working in, in Iowa, there was one guy that they put a concert out that I think live streamed. Okay. And he was watching it on his phone during his shift <laughs> because it was there and he was a huge Pearl Jam fan. And, I mean, the, the threat of being fired, obviously, would be one reason I wouldn't do it. But at the same time, it's like, eh, you know, I, could, I couldn't, if someone gave me tickets, I would probably go, but I'm not going to seek it out. But still, they're a decent band. I, gotta, I have to agree with you there. If somebody gave me tickets, I'd go see Pearl Jam as long as I didn't have anything else more important to do. You know, it's well, yeah, exactly. It's just one of those things. It's it's one of those bands. You know, if I'm flipping through the radio stations or whatever, and Pearl Jam's on, I don't flip by them just because they're Pearl Jam. But you do check to see if there's another better song on, don't you? Yes, it's one of those songs you come back to. Yeah, exactly. Except for for Jeremy, which I think is an amazing song, which is about a kid being bullied. So I think that was based on a, a news story, wasn't it? Yeah, like I think it was life? based on a real life thing, but it's about a kid being bullied and how he, uh, you know, he just pretty much 
goes nuts in the classroom and kills a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. But it's a really good song. But anyway, I, I digress. What you got next? I have a really fun song. Okay. A fun right. black song. A fun black song. Black Betty by Ram Jam. All right. Okay, you can't tell me that's not a fun song. Oh, it's an awesome song. The rhyming and it's hilarious, but whatever. Right. So Black Betty is a 20th century African-American work song often credited to Huddy Leadbelly Leadbetter as the author, though the earliest recordings are not by him. Some sources claim it was one of Leadbelly's many adaptions of earlier folk material. In this case, an 18th century marching cadence about a flintlock musket. There are numerous recorded versions, including uh, a cappella, folk, and rock arrangements. The best-known modern recordings are rock versions by Ram Jam, Tom Jones, and Spiderbait, all of which were hits. Let's listen to the Ram Jam's version. Jones? Yeah, that's what I said too, and I have not had a chance to seek it out to see what it is. Oh my god, I'm gonna have to go look for that because I mean I am a fan of the original song. It's it's been in a lot of different movies, usually like a southerny type, uh, right? Because it's a southern rock type song, and um, I I can't no, I can't even imagine that. I really can't. Anyway, the origin and meaning of the lyrics are subject to debate. Historically. The Black Betty of the title may refer to the nickname given to a number of objects. A musket, a bottle of whiskey, a whip, penitentiary, transfer wagon. Some sources claim the song is derived from the 18th century marching cadence about a flintlock musket with a black painted stock. The Bam Bam Lamb lyric referring to the sound of the gunfire. In the British Army from the early 18th century, the standard musket had a walnut stock and was thus known at least... Or by at least 1875 as a brown bass. There is no citation, however, for this firearm or subsequent models being known as a Black Betty. So there's a lot of what's it really about kind of thing. And, you know, great, whatever. Great song. It's it's one of those fun songs, you know, as soon as the music hits, you know, it's Black Betty, bam, alam, alam. Or even just the gong at the very beginning. Yeah. Like, or not gong, but uh, just the cymbals. How right. It just crashes and just rumbles. Yeah. Every Everybody knows, if you know this song at all, the minute you hear it, you know exactly what you're listening to. Absolutely. What are your thoughts about the song? I'm, I'm a fan. I think they are very much a one-hit wonder because I could not tell you, for the life of me, another song that Ram Jam ever did. Yeah, you got me. Um, it might have been a maxi single for all I know, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, they knocked it out of the park with this one. It's it's just a fun song, be it a cover or not. It's still entertaining and and it's still used all the time. Well, do you remember when we were putting this episode together, and I said I want to do Black Betty by Lead Belly, and you're like, really? Yeah, and then I sent you the the link for it, and you're like, no, because <laughs> I was confused. I I knew what the song was, but actually, I don't even know if this is a remake of that song because the song that link that you sent to me wasn't the same song really it had the same title and some of the same words and i think that was about it yeah yeah but it was it was more of i mean what lead belly did was more <laughs> of a what would you call it more of a spiritual folksy kind of thing more of like an old brother we're out there type thing yeah exactly and then what i was looking for was the ram jam version and <laughs> So that that changed, but I did want to put the plug in there about Lead Belly because I mean he was one of those guys. He was around for a long time. He did a lot of great music. Let's move on to the next one. What do you got? I have probably one of the longest titles of all of them that we'll be using, and that is "Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress." Oh, I love that song. And okay, so 1972. It's a British group, the Hollies. They gave us this song, sung in kind of a John Fogerty Creedence uh, Clearwater style. That is affectionately known as Swamp Rock. Swamp Rock? Yes. Of course. Songs about a guy who's minding his own business, working for the FBI, staking out bootleggers, and he gets distracted by a honey of a woman wearing, you guessed it, a black dress. Yep. Sirens wail, the bad guys scatter with gunfire, and then it's over. Singer gets a handshake from the DA and the girl, and that's that. <laughs> it's, it tells a pretty solid story of kind of a start to finish. Yep. So uh, take a quick listen here. I'm a 
Now, I personally have always enjoyed this song because of the style of it. I mean, I like CCR, and I like the fact that it's almost, you can almost see the guy with one of those old-timey, real, uh, like, chrome microphones kind of leading over the edge, kind of like Robert Palmer used to do. Yeah. And I love the reverb on the mic, how it always has, like, you. it almost sounds like it's he's singing it, and there's just a huge echo that comes through. I really enjoy that, and I just get the image of a guy in a dark suit on a stage singing in an old-time microphone. Yeah, you know, it, it almost has a feel of, uh, visually, when you hear the song, mm-hmm. you can almost visualize Johnny Cash. Yeah. With the mic hanging down from the cord, with that big, you know, Madison Square Garden type mic on the oh, end. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and him just singing into it. That's just that's just the visual I get from that song. Oh, yeah. I mean, or again, too, having it on the stand, just kind of holding it. Yep. Again, like Robert Palmer did it on all of his videos, kind of leaning or like, off to the you, side. Like a Bing Crosby thing? Yes, like a crooner a, kind of thing? A, a Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra type yeah. thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And it's a great song. It's a... It's, um, it's a classic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, most people, I mean... They'll either call it Long Cool Woman. I think the In a Black Dress is in parentheses if you look at the official title. The Hollies are a pretty popular band. They've got a lot of stuff out there. Uh, and this is, I think, one of their top ones. Shall we move on? Absolutely. What you got next? Well, I have Man in Black by Johnny Cash. Okay. So it Speaking is, of the man. Exactly. Man in Black is a protest song written and recorded by singer-songwriter Johnny Cash, originally released on his 1971 album of the same name. Cash himself was known as the Man in Black for his distinctive style of onstage costuming. The lyrics are an, are an after-the-fact explanation of this with the entire song as a protest statement against racism, the treatment of poor people by wealthy politicians, and the condemnation of mass in- incarceration, and the war in Vietnam. Let's listen to a bit. I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down. Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town I wear it for the prisoner Who has long paid for his crime But is there because he's a victim of the time In the intro to his first performance of the song, Johnny Cash revealed he had talked to some of the audience members from Vanderbilt University that weekend and was inspired to write Man in Black. Revising it a few times before the concert on Wednesday, at the end of the song, he receives a standing ovation. I could get on my soapbox, but I won't. Suffice it to say that you should remember the less fortunate and maybe go spend three minutes seeing what Johnny was thinking about. This song, when I listened to it, I had heard it probably when I was a kid at some point, you know, because mm-hmm. my dad was a big Johnny Cash fan. Okay. But when I went back to it and I sat and I listened to it, it's really a powerful song. And what he puts in that three minutes, I mean, it would take... He could have made an album just based on what he stuck into that three minutes. But it was a song that he wrote spur of the moment. He wrote it on, like, the weekend and performed it on Wednesday. You know, show me a band that's going to do that today. Yeah, I'd be hard-pressed. But anyway, so what do you think of the song or Johnny Cash in general? The guy's a legend. There's there's no other way to put it. I mean, he's done so much good work, regardless what you think about his past life and how, you know, his relationships and so on and so forth. I mean, the, again, the guy's just a legend. There's really nothing else to say. Me not really being a huge country fan really didn't ever get into Johnny Cash, except for some of the stuff that was always played like Ring of Fire or Boy Named Sue, because that song's friggin' hilarious. It is. It's funny, and but it, it still tells a story, and that was the one thing... Being a Johnny Cash fan like I am, that is one thing that makes Johnny Cash worth listening to, is his songs tell a story. And, and a lot of good country artists do that. Mm-hmm. Um, my first thought comes to Charlie Daniels with Devil Went Down to Georgia. Oh, I, that's a great song, too. It's a great song. It's got a tight story. I mean, there's no whatever. There's no symbolism. It's like, this is the story. It's got great fiddle work. It's just a great song. <laughs> and he's talking about a legitimate fiddle of gold. He's not bullshitting. It's not... It's not hyperbole no it's, it's nothing like all that. that glitters is gold you like, no this is actually a solid gold stradivarius right exactly all right so what do you got next next we're going to go with um kind of a different spectrum here we're going to go black magic woman by santana oh also a good song absolutely um song was released in 1970 and santana as i'm pretty sure you probably already know really doesn't sing uh, doesn't really talk that much actually either he's just kind of known as a uh, spanish guitar virtuoso if I'm using that word correctly. Yeah. 
it's the song is entertainingly mysterious. I mean, the tune's about a guy who is obsessed, possibly magically induced, with a black magic woman, and can't think about anything else but being with her. Cool. So uh, let's take a quick listen here. Got a black magic woman. Got a black magic woman. I've got a black magic woman. Got me so blind I can see. That she's a black magic woman. She's trying to make a devil out of me. Now, most people, myself included, consider this to be one of Santana's greatest hits. While a lot of people don't realize, though, that this actually wasn't a Santana song originally. It was written and released by Fleetwood Mac in 1968, two years prior. Ha ha! I knew that! <laughs> um, and it kind of hit moderate success. It reached number 37 on the UK singles chart. Uh, Santana released it as a medley with the instrumental Gypsy Queen, and it did a lot better actually hitting the Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number four. Wow. So adding a little bit of an instrument to the beginning, because if you recall the song, it has that little beginning part on there. Um, and just releasing it with Santana's different style, it just went phenomenally better. Santana is one of those guys, I fell in love with his guitar work. I was at one of the one of the music stores, and I found Santana Aberax, I think was the name of the album, or something like that. I think so, yeah. And Black Magic Woman was on there, along... And it might even be like a greatest hits album, but that song and so many of the other ones are on there. And you just listen to his guitar work and it's just like, wow, you know, the guy's amazing on a, on a guitar. Absolutely. I mean, it's not, he's not like a shredder either. I mean, because anybody, I mean, I don't want to say anybody that way, but generally speaking, anybody who knows how to use a guitar well can noodle. They can, yeah. you know, they can play around, they can just do that or whatever the case is. He legitimately has a way to actually follow the tempo, keep this, keep the song going and just has just great skill with his with that like it's a Spanish style guitar. Yeah. Have you ever seen him actually play? I mean, have you seen video of him playing? Only like music videos, like the Smooth video with Rob Thomas. Okay. They show him playing also. I saw clips from when he was at Woodstock. Okay. And he's playing, and this guy is just lost. He's not. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. There's a quarter of a million people out there in front of him. He's just lost in the guitar. It's just a connection. Him and the guitar have a connection. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, and I mean, it's, there's really not a whole heck of a lot else to say. I mean, it's a good song. He's got great talent. And that's pretty much the main thing right there. Yeah, I would agree. So what you got next for us? All right. I'm going to jump to uh, back to the grunge a little bit. So I got Black Hole Sun by Soundgarden. Okay. Yeah. It's a song by the U.S. rock band Soundgarden. Like I said, the song was released in 1994 as the third single from the band's fourth studio album, Super Unknown. I love that album in general. That's I, I like the in general part. Well, the, it's it's almost an album where you can listen beginning to end without skipping. But there are two there's, songs. There's a couple dogs. There's a couple dogs in there. But anyway, it was arguably the band's most recognizable and most popular song, and it remains well known. It remains a well-known song from the 1990s. And still heavily played on the radio. Oh, yes. The song topped the Billboard Mainstream Rock track chart, where it spent a total of seven weeks at number one. Despite peaking at number two on the modern rock tracks, Black Hole Sun still finished as the number one track of 1994 for that chart. How does that work? How can you top out at number two but be the number one song for the entire year? I don't know. It failed to hit the Billboard Hot 100 chart due to the rules of a physical-slash-commercial release of the single at the time, but it still peaked at number 24 on the Hot 100 Airplay chart and number 9 on the Mainstream Top 40 chart. The song was included on Soundgarden's 1997 Greatest Hits album, A-Sides, and appeared again on the 2010 compilation album, Telephantasm. Let's go ahead and take a listen. Black Hole Song was written by frontman Chris Cornell. Cornell said that he wrote the song in about 15 minutes. Regarding Black Hole Sun, Cornell stated, It's just sort of a surreal dreamscape, a weird play-with-the-title kind of song. He also said that, lyrically, it's probably the closest to me just playing with words for the word's sake of anything I've written. I guess it 
worked for a lot of people who heard it, but I have no idea how you'd begin to take that one literally. In another interview, he elaborated further, stating, It's funny because hits are usually sort of congruent, sort of an identifiable lyric idea, and the song pretty much had none. The chorus lyric is kind of beautiful and easy to remember. Other than that, I sure didn't have an understanding of it after I wrote it. I was just sucked in by the music, and I was painting a picture with the lyrics. There was no real idea to get across. Commenting upon how the song was misinterpreted as being positive, Cornell said, No one seems to get this, but Black Hole Sun is sad. But because the melody is really pretty, everyone thinks it's an almost chipper, which is ridiculous. When asked about the line, Times are gone for honest men, Cornell said, It's really difficult for a person to create their own life and their own freedom. It's going to become more and more difficult, and it's going to create more and more disillusioned people who become dishonest and angry and are willing to fuck the next guy to get what they want. There's so much stepping on the backs of other people in our profession. We've been so lucky that we've never had to do that. Part of it was because of their own tenacity, and part of it was because we were lucky. That's a very long bunch of stuff, but I thought the stuff that Cornell was saying was worth repeating. Right. Great song. One of the most fucked up music videos I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. This is you like know, with high the, with speed the, background. Yeah, and then the faces are distorting and turning into... Answer me this. Yes. How the hell can you say that this is a chipper song? Who, who in their right mind would consider this to be a chipper? I understand that's what he's saying, but this is not a happy song. No, I don't know Listen where... Listen the chorus. It's like kind of morose and just like all kind of like... <sighs> you know, it's, it's just the words. You know, Black Hole Sun, Won't You Come, and Wash Away the Pain. I'm not even talking about the words. I'm talking about the music itself. It's kind of a slow plotting... Yeah, like, absolutely. It's, it's like an Eeyore song. <laughs> it's got almost a funeral dirge feel to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know? And yeah, I don't get... And you know, I don't follow a lot of the music magazines or anything like that, and especially back in 94, I could have sure. cared less. And it's one of those things where I don't know who was saying this stuff, but they were wrong. Yeah. You know, and here's the other thing, too. There's, I'm sure there's tons of people who try to analyze it. There is with everything. And sometimes it's just fucking ridiculous. I remember being in school, you know, and, and you would read a book, let's say, you know, in an English class. You'd read this classic drivel. You know, you'd read Moby Dick oh, or, you know, some piece of classic writing that's supposed to have all this hidden meaning in it. And I want to go back and talk to Herman Melville. And he's going to be like, what? He's going to be like, no, I needed money for booze, so I wrote a book. Was it about this? No, it was about a fucking whale, all right? Get over it. It was about a whale and this motherfucking guy that wanted to kill the whale. Right. End of story. It's, you know, and there's a little tangent to it. I, I took a fiction to film class. Okay. And I'll give you three guesses, but you're probably only going to need one. What movie do you think the dude made us watch and spend most of the semester on? Something with Shakespeare. No. No. Citizen fucking Kane. Oh. You know, I've never seen that movie. It's take about four and a half hours, flush your time away, and you just watch the movie. Is it worth it? <sighs> to, to see it, for the fact of actually seeing it, I would say yes. Okay. For analyzation purposes, no. So, I don't really analyze you know, movies. He put the camera from the ground up, looking up his nose to see those seven nose hairs, and what that meant was the seven deadly sins. No! He put the camera up there just to get a different angle. Right. right. I don't care if he pulled three floorboards out to put the camera there. I don't give a shit. Right, right. No, I get you. I get you. So, but yes, I mean, it's getting back to the song, people probably analyze the hell out of it, just like they do with everything else. It's nice to see that Cornell's basically saying, nah, you're wrong. <laughs> I like Chris Cornell, um, you know, like in interviews and stuff. He always seems to be a pretty down-to-earth guy. So when he tells me that, no, it's not about what all these jagoffs think it's about, I'm going to be like, I'm going to believe him. Yeah, because he's not trying to blow sunshine up your skirt. He's right, exactly. He's just telling you the truth on that one. Right. I mean, he tells you right there that, you know, I just put a bunch of fucking words together. Trying to paint this picture, but what the picture is, I don't know. The words sounded pretty together, so that's how it is. Yeah, so what do you got next? Next, we're going to go a lot harder, actually. Okay. We're going to go for some Metallica. All right. We got the song Blackened that uh, released in 1998, or I'm sorry, 1988. Who would have thought that Metallica would give us a song with a strong moral and or environmental themes? I'm not familiar with the song, so... Tell it's me about it. Blacken. It was the first track off their Injustice for All album. Does exactly that. Uh, gives us this metal-infused cautionary tale about planetary destruction by nuclear holocaust. 
I was given the Black Album for Christmas by my uncle. Uh, he went to Inner Sleeve back when it was right next to where Shepard and Chandler is. Okay. And he asked for something for me that I would like, and this is what the guy recommended. So, of course, listening to the Black Album, I'm like, I wonder what their back catalog is, because that was the most recent new release, so I went back and listened to Injustice for All, and that's where I really, really came to appreciate Metallica's thrash. That and Master Puppets, I mean, that's classic Metallica right, right. there. yep. Before uh, they sold out. Yeah, before, <laughs> before they cut their hair and they sold out. I mean, to be fair, though, however, I always thought Lars Ulrich was a dink. And... Everything even, I've even seen about him. Even before the Napster him. stuff. Even yeah. before that. Yeah, everything I've seen, every interview you've seen with Lars, it's just like, that is a dude, I I don't care how metal he is, I would never want to hang out with that dude. He's kind of a smarmy dick. Yeah. So, anyways, let's just listen to a clip of the music real quick. Again, this is off of And Justice for All, and I highly recommend this to anybody. I mean, if you haven't gotten into their older stuff, I mean, the newer stuff, like what, St. Anger, I think, was one of the new ones. Yeah, that sounds there's, right. There's a new one that they were playing a song for on WrestleMania recently that actually I kind of liked. Yeah, the song was really kind of neat, and I can't think of it right now, I but we either. did watch WrestleMania, and Metallica did have one of the theme songs. And I liked it. I mean, sellout or not, they still sometimes put out good music, and I'm putting sometimes out there because there's a lot of it that is shit. Well, you know, and that's that's any band. You put a band together that's been together for what is it now? Probably thirty years Something or like damn that, yeah. close. Yeah, you, they're gonna have dogs. It's just gonna happen. It's just more now than it used to be, though. Well, yeah, and I think that has a lot. One of my favorite bands, Bon Jovi. The last few albums they have put out, it, they've all been kind of like. Mm, what do you guys I mean I know you guys are getting older but do we have to do geriatric rock <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know and that's you, you mentioned the sellout thing and that's just kind of their different their different genre that they're doing too I mean they went I kind of from... I kind of mentioned that in a offhand humorous way I don't think they've actually sold out no well yeah because actually they said yeah we're sellouts we sell out every arena we go to right and that was Lars being Lars again right but, but he has a point he does I mean if people didn't like him anymore they wouldn't go see him I have to say I'm still a big fan of the older stuff like back when they did their more thrash versus their hard rock because they've softened well and um, I think that has to do with age maybe it was James Hetfield getting the shit burned out of him on the on the stage I think that was a guns concert wasn't it ah uh, I don't if, know if I if memory serves and I'm probably wrong on this when I'm prefacing this <laughs> I think it was Toronto and Metallica was opening for Guns N' Roses and something went wrong with the pyro and he burned the living hell out of his left arm or something oh really like either second or third degree I think secondary burns that's yeah and they pulled him off the stage and and Axel was made a typical Axel move, got pissed and didn't play, and it was a riot or something. But I mean, it all started with James Hetfield getting burned crispy. You know, Axel Rose is one of those guys. Honestly, I would love to meet the dude. I don't think I'd like him though. I just, I just think he's too much of a dick. You know what? I, I can't disagree with you. I, I really can't. There's nothing I can say or think of to say that is going to be contrary to that. <laughs> I mean, especially now. Back in the day in his drug-fueled skinny jeans era, he might have been interesting to tell to hear stories of. Right. Now, I mean, everybody as they get older gains weight. Yeah. He just looks like he doesn't care anymore, though. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of got that Pillsbury Doughboy thing going on, doesn't he? And then didn't he, like, have a concert, like, in a wheelchair when he busted his ankle or something? Oh, I don't Maybe. I, I he, wouldn't put it past him. I know Dave Grohl did that once. There was okay. a Foo Fire concert. He broke his leg, and he basically finished the concert sitting in a chair, which was cool as hell. But Dave Grohl is also insane, and not in a bad way. No, no, I, I hear you. I guess there's not a whole lot more to say about it than, you know, listen to more Metallica. You'll, be, you'll feel better about yourself. Yeah, and listen to older stuff first. Yeah. I actually recommend starting with Master of Puppets. Kill em All was good. I would say, I would say start with Black. Because Black was still pretty hard, but if you want to go into your thrash, go back to Kill 'Em All and just Ride the Lightning is actually one of my other favorites. Okay, yeah. What do you got next? I'm going to slow things way down from Metallica. Way down. I've got uh, Blackbird is a song by the Beatles, 
but performed as a solo effort by Paul McCartney from their 1968 double album, The Beatles, also known as The White Album. I, and I say that because there are people out there that I have talked to people and you say, The Beatles, and they go, which album? And you say, The Beatles. And they're like, did they do it? Yeah, you probably noticed The White Album. Oh, The White Album. <laughs> and yeah. I, I'm serious. There are those people out there. So. I would have been one of them, actually, because even well, when I... Even but when, you're not a Beatles guy. No, I'm not. And that's why when I went first looking for this, in fact, when I heard this back in the day, because remember back at, way back when Nike used the song Revolution for the yep. commercial? I really liked the song, so I wanted to listen to it. And, of course, this is back when they still had vinyl at the Wausau Library. Okay. So I went to try to find it. I'm like, what the hell? I can't find this. And it turned out to be the White Album is what they called it. Right. So that was where I'm like, Light bulb. Right. You know, at some point, I will tell you a story about two Beatles albums that escaped my clutches. And maybe I'll do it after we're done here, but let's get into this. All right. So the song was written by McCartney, though credited to Lennon-McCartney, as all Beatles songs are. McCartney has stated that the lyrics of the song were inspired by the unfortunate state of race relations in the United States in the 1960s. Let's listen to a bit. Blackbird singing in the dead of Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise Since composing Blackbird in 1968, McCartney has given differing, contradictory statements regarding both his inspiration for the song and its meaning. One of these scenarios, he has said he was inspired by hearing the call of a blackboard one morning when the Beatles were studying transcendental meditation in Rishikesh, India. In another, he recalls writing it in Scotland as a response to racial tensions escalating in the United States during the spring of 1968. In May 2002, following a show in Dallas, Texas, McCartney discussed the song with KCRW DJ Chris Duradas saying... I had been doing some poetry readings in the last year or so because I've got a poetry book out called Blackbird Singing, and then I would read Blackbird. I would always try and think of some explanation to tell the people. So I was doing explanations, and I actually just remembered why I'd written Blackbird. You know, uh, that I'd been... I was in Scotland playing on my guitar, and I remembered this whole idea of you were only waiting for this moment to arise was about... You know, the black people struggle in the southern states. And I was using the symbolism of a blackbird. It's not really about a blackbird whose wings are broken, you know. It's a bit more symbolic. Before his acoustic guitar set during the same U.S. tour, McCartney explained that bird is British slang for a girl, making blackbird a synonym for black girl. And so there was three different stories just in that short bit that I had here. You know, and it makes me wonder, you know, McCartney is well known for his, when he was younger, they they were all into drugs, but McCartney was more of a weed guy. So I wonder if that has something to do with the way he remembers things. Or doesn't. Or doesn't remember things. You know, but you would think you would tell a story, and you would make your story up, and then you would keep that story, and not just keep switching out. You know what, though? By switching it out every time... That just adds to the mystery. I mean, you got the complete opposite of Cornell. That's true. Exactly. It's like, you know what, we're going to go ahead and just keep telling you different things. Just like Deadpool, how he, his origin story, he tells it different every time. Right. The, um, the, the Joker. Joker. Wow. That. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, anyway, the song Blackbird, I love that song. It's It's got a very nice melody to it. It's got a nice little. It floats. It floats very well. And I really enjoy listening to it. That said, it's not what I would consider a true Beatles song. It doesn't have the feel of a quote-unquote Beatles song to me. I can understand that. I mean, unless, I mean, because he's got, uh, Paul McCartney has one of those very recognizable voices. Right. That, uh, that's another thing we talked about doing also, or I did at least, is recognizable voices in rock. Because there's a certain song that if you hear, it's like, oh, that's either Wings or that's McCartney. Right. You can tell. That'd be about the only way I would think it would be a Beatles song. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So what do you think of the song in general? You know, I, I had heard it before, but I never knew what it was called. So when I listen to it here, and I, I enjoy the song. It's it's very, as we mentioned here, it floats. It's very light-hearted. I wasn't looking at it symbolically again. Um, but it's just an entertaining, kind of a calm-me-down type thing, where if you're 
you know, if you had a rough day, you could have like a CD made of kind of calm you down songs. I would put this on there. Yeah, fair enough. Because I think it would be one that would just kind of let the let the toxins of the day come out, as it were. That's my spiritual hippie thing speaking. There you go. So what's your uh, next one? My last one is the absolute first one that came to mind when we decided to talk about black. I did that with my last one, too. So go on. So my first thought was Back in Black by ACDC. Okay. Hey, did I tell you this? I just picked that CD up. It's it, uh, for, a, for a great price, my understanding is. Yes, 99 cents. Oh, you know what? I wish I would have paid that for mine. <laughs> but anyways, moving on. Um, as I mentioned, when Chad came up with the idea to do black songs, this was literally the first thing that came to mind. And I wanted to save that one for last because I'm a big ACDC fan. This song it came out in 1980 and was the first single to come off the album of the same title. Um, so that's Back in Black. Right. And it was the first one that actually came out Came out in 1980. It was the first hit single off of the album of the same name. And I'm not the only one who was popular for it either. It was Back in Black, a tribute to lead singer Bon Scott, who had passed away in February of 1980, has been certified 22 times platinum. Wow. And Worldwide is number two on the all-time best-selling list, followed only by Michael Jackson's Thriller. Wow. So 20 times... 22 times platinum does not equal diamond? I don't recall. <laughs> okay. I, I, I don't remember what the official is on everything, but it's a shitload. Oh, yeah. I mean, twenty times, 22 times platinum. That's, wow. That's pretty insane. Let's go ahead and take a quick snippet of it, and then we'll talk more. You know, anybody who's listened to this and any previous episodes, I am obviously an ACDC fan. Big Mark. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. I am a Mark for ACDC. And this is the first album Brian Johnson did. His voice is not the same as Bon Scott's. He isn't quite as high, and he is absolutely screechy. Right. However, not the same type of screechy that Axel is. And I've heard that he toured with ACDC, or is he, he is currently. currently touring with them. I don't know. I just, it's I awful. haven't heard any of it. I'm biased, obviously, but I've seen YouTube videos, and it is awful. Axel, in general, is awful live. Oh, yeah. You know, and he's got his style. When he was with Guns N' Roses, uh, Appetite for Destruction, great album. The, si the type of songs that they did are great. Doing ACDC type stuff. He's, it's impossible to find, I think it'll be impossible to find another good lead singer, just like it's impossible for people to do karaoke of it. Right. Or people to try to sing it on your own. I mean, there's a lot of female uh, bands that actually, ACDC. Okay. Which, they do this stuff, and they're actually kind of successful with it, but okay. it's not the same. And it's it just doesn't work for me. Okay, fair enough. But I mean, back in black, I remember hearing this. Back when I was like visiting family members because they would sit in the basement and do what they were doing. We would play pool on the pool table, leaving the adults alone. And of course, that was some of the music that was playing. So not only is it childhood memories, but it's also just damn good music. ACDC is one of those bands. Is everything great? No. 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 Um, you know, but they are one of those bands where I'm sure you can look at every album in their catalog and there's something good on every one of them. Oh, Absolutely. So, I'm not a huge ACDC fan. I mean, radio play stuff. I know a little bit of stuff that's not radio play. Sure. But it's one of those bands where I'm not going to run by them on the on the uh, radio dial. Mm -hmm. I'm not even going to go see if there's something better out there. Because you hear that voice, and there's just something about the voice. Yes, Bon Scott and, and um, Johnson. Johnson. They're different. But either one of them, they are just... The, they're can, successfully different. They're successfully different, and when you hear them, you think ACDC. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's not like it's not like Van Halen, where if I hear Diamond Dave, I'm like, hey, Van Halen. And if I hear Sammy, I'm like, switch, you know, flip the switch. Fair enough. It's not Van Halen to me. It's Van Hagar. Okay, I can understand that. But, you know, it's just little things like that. And the fact that they've had two lead singers that are vocally different, though similar, mm -hmm. and they're both good at what they do, right. that that says a lot for the band staying together and keeping 
the feel of the band. Oh, yeah. I mean, they... I think some of the nicknames, of course, like Thunder from Down Under and everything else, but I think that was used for a male stripper review from Australia as well. When Could I, be. When I was in Vegas, I think they did that too. I'm just like, no, not what I was thinking. <laughs> You're like, oh, why did I buy tickets to this? I didn't. Actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was when we were at the Flamingo, they had posters out. It's like, oh, male review, Thunder from Down Under. I'm like, no. <laughs> so I went and gambled my money away instead. Well, there you go. What do you got next, or do you have another one? I do, I do. I have, again, just like your last one, my last one is the first one that came to my mind when I when I thought of Black. All right. Paint It Black by the Rolling Stone. Written by the songwriting partnership of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, and first released as a single on May 6, 1966, it was later included as the opening track to the U.S. version of their 1966 album, Aftermath. Painted Black reached number one in both the Billboard Hot 100 and UK Singles Chart. The song became the Rolling Stones' third number one hit single in the U.S. and sixth in the U.K. Since its initial release, the song has remained influential as the first number one hit featuring a sitar, particularly in the U.K. where it has charted in two other instances, and has been the subject of multiple cover versions, compilation albums, and film appearances. Here, listen to this. The song's lyrics are, for the most part, meant to describe bleakness and depression through the use of color-based metaphors. Initially, Paint It Black was written as a standard pop arrangement, humorously compared by Mick Jagger to songs for Jewish weddings. The song set the scene of a mournful partner at a funeral, similar in terms to a blues or folk number. It is often claimed that Jagger took inspiration from novelist James Joyce's 1922 book, Ulysses Take the excerpt, I have to turn my head until my darkness goes, referring to the novel's theme of a worldwide view of depression and desolation. The song itself came to fruition when rhythm guitarist Brian Jones took an interest in Moroccan music. It was their first song to feature a sitar instrumental. Painted Black came at a pivotal period in the Rolling Stones recording history, at a time that saw the songwriting collaboration of Jagger and Keith Richards assert itself as the principal composers of the band's original material. This is evident in the Aftermath sessions where, for the first time, the duo penned the complete track list. In addition, Brian Jones, overshadowed by Jagger and Richards, grew bored with the attempt with attempting to write songs as well as conventional guitar melodies. To alleviate the boredom, Jones explored Eastern instruments more specifically, the sitar to bolster the group's musical texture and complexity. Jones had a background with the sitar as early as 1961 and talked at length about the technicalities of playing the instrument. A natural multi-instrumentalist, Jones was able to develop a tune from the sitar in a short amount of time, largely due to his studies under Ravi Shachnar's disciple Harihar Rao, so, not long after discussing with George Harrison, who had recently recorded sitar in Norwegian wood, Jones arranged basic melodies with the instrument that, over time, morphed into the one featured in Painted Black. So, I went pretty deep on the background of that one. Now, Painted Black is just a good... It is a depressing song. It is not a song that you listen to and you walk away from going, Yay! No, not at all. <laughs> My first thought... Yes. And when I hear this song, is Tour of Duty. Remember that CBS Vietnam War show that was on? Yes. This was the opening theme for it. Yes. And so, of course, that was one of the things that came straight to mind. Because, And if you watch any war movies between this and, like, Fortunate Son and uh, Born to be Wild or things like this, these are all songs that are almost always linked up with because of the time that they were released and because of the topic, the war. And I use the war in finger quotes because it could be any war, but Vietnam especially because look at think of the Hueys flying through and you hear this kind of right. stuff flying through. So that's that's my first thought. Is it a happy song? You're right. No, that's why it's not on our happy list. Right. It's a lot of fun though. Oh, it is. I mean, it's it's 
built in such a way you have uh, Mick Jagger and you have Keith Richards and then you add the sitar from Brian Jones and it just all comes together. It's one of those classic Rolling Stones songs. I mean, you don't hear the song Painted Black and think any other band. No, not at all. And it's just, I really enjoy the song. There's something about the melody of the song and the the sadness that makes you kind of think and and look at your life. Now, you're not the kind of guy that finds a lot of meaning in this song, but or digs for a lot of meaning, I should say. But this is not a hidden meaning in this song. No, it's not shrouded at all. I right. Mean, it's pretty straightforward, you know. And I think when when it comes to this one, too, it's just like, you know, I have my evil inside. I just need to kind of take a breath before shit just explodes. Right. And that's probably the easiest way to put it. And this is one of those, too, where you hear those first couple notes, and it's just like, I know what this is, and I'm ready to go. Right. Exactly. So you ever think to yourself... You know, I really like what these guys are doing for us. You know, they get out there, they give us music, they tell us about the music, they tell us what they think about the music, and you want to let us know about it? Well, there's an easy way to do that. In fact, there's two easy ways to do that. Why don't you tell us how? I'm going to do that. So, first of all, you can email us at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com, or if you're really high techy. And into the social media stuff. You can find us on Facebook at Musically Challenged Podcast. And you can leave us a note there as well. So, again, thank you guys for listening. I think we are moving to a standard of about an hour show. So, 45 minutes to an hour. It just works better for everything we want to give to you guys out there. Again, thank you for listening this week. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>